As we continue our series in 1 John, we're looking at chapter 2, and I'd like to read verses 18 through the end of the chapter. 1 John, did I say John? 1 John, chapter 2, verses 18 through 29. Dear children, this is the last hour, as you have heard, that the Antichrist is coming. Even now, many antichrists have come. This is how we know it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they did not really belong to us. For if they had belonged to us, they would have remained with us, but their going showed that none of them belonged to us. But you have an anointing from the Holy One, and all you know, and all of you know the truth. I do not write to you because you do not know the truth, but because you do know it, and because no lie comes from the truth. Who is the liar? It is whoever denies that Jesus is the Christ. Such a person is the Antichrist, denying the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever acknowledges the Son has the Father also. As for you, see that when you have heard from the beginning remains in you. If it does, you also will remain in the Son and in the Father. And this is what he promised us, eternal life. I'm writing these things to you about those who are trying to lead you astray. As for you, the anointing you receive from him remains in you, and you do not need anyone to teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about all things, and as that anointing is real, not counterfeit, just as it has taught you, remain in him. And now, dear children, continue in him, so that when he appears, he may be, we may be confident and unashamed before him at his coming." If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone who does what is right has been born of him. It doesn't matter what you believe, as long as you're sincere. That statement kind of sums up the personal philosophy, I think, of a lot of people these days, but I wonder if they've really thought that through. It sounds kind of good. Is sincerity the magic ingredient that something is true, that makes something true? If it is, it should be able to apply in every aspect of our lives, not just religion. I think that's often said in the religious aspect. A nurse in a hospital, for example, believes she is giving the right medicine to a patient and the patient becomes violently ill. What went wrong? She was sincere about the medication she was giving, but the patient almost dies. It takes more than sincerity to make something true. Faith in a lie will always cost, uh, cause serious consequences. But faith in the truth is never out of place. It absolutely makes a difference in what a person believes. Someone once said, God is the truth, the Bible is a truth about the truth, and theology is a truth about the truth about the truth. Chew on that one a little bit. A number of years ago, my wife and I were driving our son to college 
It was getting late, and we had to stop for dinner, and so we stopped, and I, I had punched in uh, the coordinates into Mr. Garmin. Some of you remember the Garmin before GPS became a thing on everybody's phone. And so we pulled off, we, we had dinner, and then we had to get on the road, get him to college, and I hit go on Mr. Garmin, and off we went. An hour and a half later, I thought, something doesn't seem right. And I did some checking, and I realized that Mr. Garmin was taking me back home. But I was sure I was going in the right direction. What happened? No matter what our fallen culture is trying to say, there is a right and there is a wrong. There is truth and there is error. There is light and there is darkness. And God, through John here in this epistle, has warned the church family, and we're talking about church family, John refers to all of us as little children, all part of the family, He's warning them about the conflict between light and darkness in chapter 1, we looked at that, and between love and hatred, and we looked at that last week in the first part of chapter 2, and now he's warning them about the third conflict, the conflict between truth and error. It's not enough for a believer to walk in the light and walk in love. Those are wonderful things. We need to be doing that. But we also must walk in truth. The issue for John here is truth or error. And before John gets into the tragic consequences of turning from the truth, he emphasizes the seriousness of the situation that we are in presently. And he uses two very specific terms in verse 18 the last hour, and Antichrist. Dear children, he says, this is the last hour. And as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists, plural, have come. And this is how we know it is the last hour. Now the last hour reminds us that a new age has dawned in this world. Back in verse 18, uh, you remember he refers to this by saying the darkness is passing and the true light is already shining. The death and resurrection of Jesus Christ started something new that God was doing in the world. And all of the Old Testament history was preparing the way for the work of Christ on the cross and then all of history since that time has just been the preparation for the end when Jesus will come and establish his kingdom. There's nothing more, listen carefully, there's nothing more that God must do for the salvation of sinners. It is finished, Jesus said. It is accomplished. The provision has been made. A lot of people, you know... I, have been a little bit confused about this term, the last hour. What does that really mean? I mean, if, if it was the last hour when John was writing this epistle, how can it still be the last hour 2,000 years later? It just does, doesn't make sense. Why hasn't Jesus returned? Well, the answer is fairly simple. God is not limited by time as we, his creatures, or our created ones, are. I mean, he, he works in human time, but he is above time. Peter reminds us in chapter 3, 2 Peter, with the Lord, the day is what? A thousand years, and a thousand years is like a day. Time means nothing to God. 
The last hour began back in John's day and has been growing in intensity ever since. That phrase describes a kind of time, not a duration of time, which means that Christians, Christians have always been living in the last hour. And that's why it's so important that we know what we believe and why we believe it. The second term, Antichrist, interestingly enough, is used only by John. I don't know if you've ever thought about that. It's only used by John in his writings to describe three different things. One, a spirit in the world that opposes or denies Christ, the spirit of Antichrist, that we will find in chapter 4. The false teachers who embody this spirit, we find that here in our passage. And the person who will lead the final world rebellion against Christ. We also have that in, uh, in our passage. The spirit of Antichrist in 1 John 4, 3 has been in the world ever since Satan declared war on God way back in Genesis chapter 3. It's the spirit of Antichrist that's behind every false doctrine and every religious substitute system to replace the truth about Jesus Christ. The word used for anti in the Greek can mean not only against, that's how we usually uh, use it, against Christ, but it can also mean, can be, mean instead of Christ. Satan all down through the ages has been substituting his counterfeit religions to deceive people. He's called, um, excuse me, and there's... There's one thing that they all have in common, and that is that they deny Christ as the Son of God. The Spirit of Christ is already in the world today, which will eventually lead to the appearance of the superhuman, super uh, uh, satanic superperson, if you, if you will. He's called the man of sin. He's called the man of lawlessness in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Now here in our passage, John explains that there are two forces at work in our world today. Truth is working through the church by the power of the Holy Spirit, and evil is working by the energy of Satan. And we learn from 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 7, that the Holy Spirit within the church body is holding back lawlessness. But when the church is removed by the rapture, Satan will be able to complete his temporary, underlying temporary victory, and take over the world with impunity. So does it really make a difference what you believe? Absolutely. It, it literally makes all the difference in the world. We're living in the last hour and the spirit of Antichrist is working in the world and the Holy Spirit is using us to hold back that lawlessness until Christ returns uh, for his own. So it is absolutely essential that we know and believe the truth, and be able to detect lies when they are thrown at us. And that's a huge aspect of what John is trying to teach here. And here in our passage this morning, John gives us three excellent marks or signs of false teachers. These false teachers are controlled by the spirit of Antichrist. The first, disting start again. The first distinguishing mark is that they depart from the fellowship. He writes in verse 19, they went out from us, but they did not really belong to us. For if they had belonged to us, they would have remained with us, but their going showed that none of them belonged to us. 
They went out from us. The us here uh, refers, of course, to the fellowship of believers, uh, to the church. Not everyone who is part of an assembly of believers, part of a local body, a, a local church, is necessarily a member of the family of God in large. The New Testament presents the church in two different ways. One's the worldwide fellowship of believers, the church, capital C, the church. And the other is, of course, the local assembly of believers, the local churches, who together comprise the larger church. Belong to the belonging to the local body of believers does not necessarily make you a member of the church, the body of Christ. We welcomed in three new members last week. That didn't make them a part of the body of Christ, enlarged. That only happens when a sinner trusts Christ as Savior, repents, and gives their life to the Lord. We are then given instruction in Scripture to become a member of a local body of believers, to meet together, to serve, and to encourage one another, and to grow uh, in our spiritual knowledge of the Lord. And one of, one of the evidences of true Christian life is a desire to be with the people of God. John tells us a little later in this letter that we know that we have passed from death to life because we love one another. We love each other. That's a mark of our salvation together. When people have spiritual realities in common, they want to be together. But the counterfeit Christians that John talks about here in chapter 2 did not remain in the fellowship. They went out from us. That does not, listen carefully, that does not imply that staying, just staying in the church keeps a person saved. That, that's not what John is saying here at all. But it does indicate that remaining in a fellowship is one evidence of a person who is truly a Christian because we are part of that local body. In his parable of the sower, Matthew, in Matthew 13, Jesus makes it clear that only those who produce fruit are truly born again. Now, it's possible to be close to an experience of salvation and even have some characteristics that would pass as Christian. They're really nice people. They say the right things. I've met a lot of them. And yet, not be a child of God. The people that John is referring to here in chapter 2 left the fellowship because they did not possess the true life and the love of Christ was not in their hearts. If you were to delve into the history of false religious cults that are out there today, you'd find that most, in most cases their founders started in a local church. They were, as John would put it, with us but not of us. And so they went out from us and they started their own groups with new revelations that they wanted to teach. The second mark of a false teacher who is controlled by the spirit of Antichrist is that they deny the faith. Listen to what he says in verses 20 to 22. But if you have an anoint, excuse me, but you have an anointing from the Holy One, and all of you know the truth. I do not write to you because you do, you don't know the truth, but because you do know it, and because no lie comes from the truth. Who is the liar? It is whoever denies that Jesus is the Christ. Such a person is the antichrist, denying the Father and the Son. So the key question for Christians are, who is Jesus Christ? 
Who is Jesus Christ? Is Christ merely an example? He was a great person, great teaching. Mahatma Gandhi, boy, he admired Jesus. Great teacher or wonderful teacher. Or is he God come in the flesh? Once again, we know that John is writing to the believers in Ephesus. You have an anointing from the Holy One. And all of you know the truth. That's essential because Paul tells us in Romans 8 9, if anyone does not have the Spirit of God, that's the Holy One that John's talking about, if you don't have the Spirit of God, they do not belong to Christ. Period. End of, end of uh, message. Now we've got something that those early believers didn't have. And sometimes we take that for granted. Not only do we have the Holy Spirit, which they had, but Jesus, and, and Jesus tells us in John 16, he guides us into all truth, but we now have God's written truth as well. They didn't have that in their hands. They had a few letters coming. And it's that written truth that the Holy Spirit now clarifies and helps us to understand. And John said because they knew and believed the truth, they could recognize a lie and who a liar was. Because, he says, no lie comes from the truth. But you've got to know the truth if you're going to recognize the lie. Now, the greatest truth of the faith that sets a Christian apart from others is this, that Jesus Christ is God come in the flesh. John is unapologetically clear about this in chapter 4. Let me just read a few verses from the beginning of that chapter, and then we'll dig deeper once we get to chapter 4. But listen to this. Dear friends, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. You're talking about the spirit of Antichrist. Okay, so the spirit of Antichrist, you've got the Holy Spirit. Test the spirits, he's saying. This is how you can recognize the spirit of God. Every spirit that acknowledges that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. But every spirit that does not acknowledge Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard is coming and even now is already in the world. You, dear children, are from God and have overcome them because the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. They are from the world and therefore speak from the viewpoint of the world and the world listens to them because that's what the world wants to hear. There are a lot of churches unfortunately, that are out there. There are pastors who are preaching the world's message of, of acceptance and compromise and, and, and tolerance and inclusiveness, preaching that God accepts sinners as they are and there's no change that's going to be expected on God's part. I'm okay, you're okay. Let's just go to church and uh, it's all good. They are speaking with the spirit of the Antichrist. John says... And, quote, they are from the world and therefore speak from the viewpoint of the world and the world listens to them. A lot of people like to say, I believe in God. But if pressed on their belief that Jesus is God, oftentimes that's just a step too far for them. But to deny the Son, John tells us here, means to deny the Father as well. You cannot separate the Father from the Son. They are one. Jesus said, I and the Father am one. 
He also made it clear that true believers honor both the Father and the Son. He says, we, we are to honor the Son. This is John chapter 5, the Gospel of John chapter 5, verse 23. We are to honor the Son just as we honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. You can't do that. If we, if we say we worship one God we, we, but leave Jesus Christ out of our worship, we are not worshiping as true Christians. In verse 23 of 1 John 2, he's even more specific. No one who denies the Son has a Father. No one. We mentioned earlier that all the, other, all the other world religious systems deny that Jesus is the Son of God, and that entails believing He is God, that He came in the flesh, that He died and rose again, and, and that He is the only way to salvation. No one who denies the Son has the Father, John says. Do you remember the graphs that I threw up a few, a few weeks ago? Um, talking about uh, what, what evangelicals believe out there. 26%, just a quick reminder, a quarter of evangelicals believe that the Bible, like all sacred writings, contain helpful accounts of ancient myths, but it's not really true. 56% of evangelicals, a little bit over half, believe that God accepts the worship of all religions. 73% of evangelicals believe that Jesus is the first and greatest being created by God. Jesus wasn't created. 43% of evangelicals, again, almost half, believe that Jesus was a great teacher, but he was not God. Boggles my mind. Absolutely boggles my mind. I can't even imagine what the percentage would be for non-evangelicals. These people have not read 1 John. They can't have. What would John say about them? He would say that they are denying the Son. Not only are they not evangelical, John would say, he would say they don't, they don't have the Father. They are not true believers. You cannot deny the Son and His Word and assume you have the Father. Jesus said in Matthew 7, 21, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. See, lip service is not good enough. That's why on the flip side, John also says, whoever acknowledges the Son has the Father also. They go together. It's a wonderful thing. The Greek word for acknowledge is, more, is much stronger than just giving a passing agreement to, yeah, I kind of believe that. It means to confess. It means to profess. It means to declare openly and boldly with assurance that Jesus is the Son. That's acknowledging Him. In verses 24 and 25 of our passage, he says, As for you, see that what you have heard from the beginning remains in you. If it does, you will also remain in the Son and in the Father. And this is what he promised us, eternal life. See that what you have heard from the beginning remains in, in you. Another way of saying, see to it. Make sure it happens. Do whatever is necessary to stand fast on and guard what you have. You know, so many Christians struggle to squeeze their 10 to 15 minutes of devotional time in into their busy day. 
The rest of the 17 hours and 45 minutes of awake time, their mind is taking in everything else. Back in 2020, the American Bible Society released its 10th annual State of the Bible report. I didn't realize they did that. It analyzes the Bible reading practices of Americans. And they found that only 9% of respondents read their Bible on a daily basis. 9%. Another recent study conducted by ChristianPolls.com surveyed self-identified Christians from various denominations and age groups regarding their prayer, prayer habits. And the results, they said, were staggering. Only 21% of those surveyed prayed for more than 20, uh, 10 minutes a day. In fact, the majority, 65%, stated that they spent less than five minutes in prayer each day. Pastor John Piper once said, The lack of prayer among Christians is one of the biggest contributors to spiritual weakness in our churches today. We believe power, prayer is the power that we have in Christ. And yet so many don't use that. And Christians wonder why they're not hearing from God, right? Where is He? I wonder why God seems so far away. He doesn't seem to be answering. And they cry out, God, where are you? And I wonder if, if God isn't responding, I'm right here. Where are you? James tells us in chapter 4, verse 8, come near to God and He will come near to you. He's there. He, he wants to be there with you. In Joshua 1.8, Joshua instructs his people to keep this book of the law always on your lips. Meditate it how, how often? Remember? Day and night so that you may be careful to do everything written in it. Then you'll be prosperous and successful. Psalm 1, verse 2 we're told, blessed is the one. Do you want to be blessed today? Blessed is the one who delights, who, whose delight is in the law of the Lord and who meditates on his law day and night. Boy, you want God's blessings. There it is. It's a promise. So why do so many people, so many so-called evangelicals, fall for the lie that the Bible is not literally true, that God accepts the worship of all religions, all roads lead to heaven? Folks, that's Hinduism. Why do so many believe that Jesus was just a good teacher, but he wasn't actually God? Well, not reading and meditating God's word and praying is a huge reason, which then sets us up to being seduced, being able to be seduced by false teachers because they sound so good. And that's why John is writing this letter. It's because we need to be aware and beware of false teachers. Why? Because, and this is our third point, they try to deceive the faithful. They try to deceive the faithful. In fact, that's exactly what he's saying in, in the next verse, in verse 26. I am writing these things to you about those who are trying to lead you astray. They're making an effort to do that. The Greek word he uses here is planao, to lead you astray. It means to cause to stray, to lead astray, to lead aside from the right way, to lead away from the truth, to lead into error, to deceive. All that is part of that word. 
And in 1 Timothy 4.1, Paul tells us that the Spirit clearly says that in, in, in latter times, some will abandon the faith and follow deceiving spirits and things taught by demons. It struck me as I was going over this, there, there, there is a cult out there called what? The Church of the Latter-day Saints. <laughs> The Spirit clearly says that the latter, in the latter times some will abandon the faith and follow deceiving spirits and things taught by demons. And Christians are falling for it. Christians are falling for it. Folks, we need to have a high view of Scripture. Our statement of faith of the Christian Missionary Alliance states this about Scripture. The Old and New Testaments inerrant as originally given, were verbally inspired by God and are a complete revelation of His will for our salvation. They constitute the divine and only rule of Christian faith and practice. That's a high view of Scripture. Paul writes in 2 Timothy 3.16 that all Scripture is God-breathed. That's a high view of Scripture. God's Word is our rock. It is our stability. It does not change. It does not waver. We believe it is verbally inspired. Words matter, as we say. There's a reason why the Holy Spirit used every word that He used in Scripture. Because words matter. That's why Jesus tells us in Matthew 5.18, For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter nor the least stroke of a pen, you've heard the jot and the tittle, will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Not one letter, not one comma, not one period is going to change. That's a high view of Scripture. And the false teachers of John's day and the false teachers of our day, even within churches today, are trying to change what God said, trying to update Scripture, update theology, to match our day and age and the human philosophies that are so prevalent to make Scripture more palatable. Jesus called Satan the father of lies. The devil's purpose is to lead Christians astray by teaching them false doctrines. And it's so important that we be able to detect the counterfeits and separate the teachings of Christ from the false teachings of Antichrist. And how can we do that? Verse 27, John, 1 John 2. As for you, the anointing you receive from him remains in you, and you do not need anyone to teach you, but as his anointing teaches you about all things, and as that anointing is real, not counterfeit... Just as it has taught you, remain in Him. The concept of the, anointing you, uh, of the anointing you received is important here. It goes back to the Old Testament practice of pouring oil on the heads of, of, of uh, a particular person being set apart for a, a certain type of service. And it was only done for a priest, it was only done for a king, and only done for a prophet. Those are the only three offices that were anointed for God's service. But now in the New Testament, a Christian is anointed. You are all anointed. Not with literal oil, but with the Spirit of God. An anointing that sets us apart for His ministry as what? One of His priests. Do you know your priest? It's Priest Lisa. Priest Evan over here. 
Priest Gus, we're all priests. We read in 1 Peter 2.9, we are a chosen people, a, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession that you may declare the praises of Him who called you out of darkness into His wonderful light. We've been anointed to be priests to declare the praises of Him. That's our responsibility, each one of us. And in verse 2 of that same chapter, he writes, You also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Priests offered sacrifices. What's the spiritual sacrifice that's, that, uh, that we are to offer? It's ourselves. 100%. He wants it all. We are to be living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. That is what is acceptable to Him. Folks, you've already been anointing. You don't have to be waiting or seeking or praying for the anointing. God gave us the Holy Spirit when we allowed Jesus Christ to be Lord of our life. And it's now... The Holy Spirit who will guide us then into all truth. Jesus' word, words in John 16. That's what John is saying right here in verse 27. As for you, the anointing you receive from him remains in you. And you do not need anyone to teach you. You don't need the outside world. You don't need the new philosophies. You don't need false teachers. Don't listen to them, John's saying. Just put that out. Listen to the Holy Spirit. Why? Because he says his anointing teaches you about all things. And as that anointing is real, not counterfeit, just as it has taught you, remain in him. So why are some Christians so easily led astray to believe false teachings? Because they are not remaining in the Spirit and his leading. John uses the word remain a lot. Here in First John, I was amazed at how often he talked about remaining. For example, in uh, right here in our ch- second chapter of First John, false teachers do not remain in the fellowship. Verse nineteen: the word or the message we have heard should remain in us. Verse twenty-four: the anointed holy, uh, the anointed speaking of the Holy Spirit remains in us, and we should remain in the Spirit. Verse 27: and as we remain in the Word and in the Spirit, we also remain in Christ. Verse 28, if we say we remain in Christ, we should walk as he walked. Uh, verse, verse 6, if we love our brothers and sisters in Christ, we remain in the light. Verse 10, going back to chapter 1, if the word remains in us, we'll be spiritually strong. And back here, chapter 2, verse 17, if we do the will of God, we shall remain forever. We shall live forever. Eternity is ours. So what are each of us doing So what are each of us doing to remain in Christ? The word for remain here is not a passive verb. I go to church every Sunday. It means to abide or to continue or to endure, to press on. What efforts are we making personally on a daily basis to remain or to continue to grow in our relationship with Christ. We need to be active. 
In fact, we need to be proactive. If you're not, as you know, in most, most anything in life, if you're not proactive about something, you're probably not going to be active either. You've got to make that decision and actually decide to do something. We need to make it a priority in our lives. How do we do that? Well, that's what John has been telling us throughout all these chapters that we've been studying. We remain in Christ. We abide in Christ. We continue in Christ by believing the truth, by obeying the truth, and loving our brothers and sisters in Christ. One commentator said, If you are a believer and find yourself out of fellowship with God, it is because you have disobeyed His word, or lacked love for a brother or sister, or believed a lie, or a combination of any of those three. And the solution, he said, is to confess your sin instantly and to claim God's forgiveness. That goes back to 1 John 1, 9. And John closes this chapter with a powerful encouragement to continue working out your salvation, as Paul would put it. Verse 28, And now, dear children, continue in him. Continue in him so that when he appears, he may be com- we may be confident and unashamed before him at his coming. Why would, it be, why would we be ashamed? We'd be ashamed if at his coming he'd find us not believing the truth, living a life of disobedience, and or not loving our brothers and sisters. A lot of people can talk the talk, but don't walk the walk. It's so obvious to see. Do you know what Jesus says of them? Not everyone says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter into the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. That's actually how John ends this chapter in verse 29, last verse of chapter 2. If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone who does what is right has been born of God. You know doing what is right. That translation seems a little weak, in my opinion. It's not wrong. It just feels a little weak. Everyone today has their own sense of right, right? <laughs> this is my truth. The Greek phrase that's translated here as everyone who does what is right very literally says everyone who is doing righteousness. That goes right back to the rightness of God. Everyone who is doing righteousness. Who's our perfect example of righteousness? It's Jesus Christ, who is one with the Father. Here's a couple of certainties to hang on to as we close here this morning. God himself declared in Isaiah chapter 45, verse 21, There is no God apart from me, a righteous God and a Savior. There is none but me. Certainty number two. If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone who does righteousness has been born of him. Here's a question for us this morning. Are you doing righteousness? Are you doing righteousness? Do you know what is right? Do you know what you believe? Do you know that it's the truth? And are you living it? In a moment, we're going to stand and sing and proclaim that I believe in God our Father.
I believe in Christ the Son. I believe in the Holy Spirit. Our God is three in one. I believe in the resurrection that we will rise again, for I believe in the name of Jesus. I trust that is your truth today, because there is no other truth. Jesus himself said, I am the truth. Father, this morning I pray, I thank you for the truth. I thank you for the rock The rock that we can stand on that is immovable, that we can have full assurance and full confidence in, and that we don't have to be swayed. The world buffets us, wind and waves and everything that's coming against us. And and, uh, Father, help us to get back always down to that rock. Let us get into your word and, and, and... See every word, every truth, everything that you have written does not change, does not even waver, and we can stand on that truth and compare it to the teachings that we're getting from outside and rebuff the lies and the false teachings that come. Father, help us to remain faithful. We believe. Help us to live our lives accordingly. In Jesus' name, amen.